I'm Art, one of the pastors here. In 1971, Jan and I were sharing Christ with couples on the beach in Southern California when we met John and Tracy. Uh, they willingly listened to the gospel as we shared it with them, and after a pretty long discussion, they both prayed and accepted God's gift of salvation. We were living in Santa Barbara, California at the time, and they were in the L.A. area. So we had to keep in touch with uh, letters and phone calls. You know, some of you may remember those things that used to sit on a table, and you'd, you'd pick up something like this, and then you'd have to do this. You know, that's how we communicated in the past. Uh, some of you have never done that. They actually came up to Santa Barbara to visit for a weekend, and they seemed to really be growing in their faith. After about six months, it became a lot more difficult to get in contact with them. When we finally did, they said that they had taken up with a group that had come to their door so they wouldn't need to be in contact with us any longer. Of course, we counseled them long and hard about that, but in the end, the Jehovah's Witnesses had snagged them and drawn them into a heresy that's in line with what we're talking about this morning, our question and answer. So would you read the question and then the answer with me, please? How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jan and I were devastated uh, by John and Tracy's wrong turn. And this question and answer is, is the reason. They chose to believe that God was one person only, that Jesus is not God, that the Holy Spirit is not God, and in fact, that the Holy Spirit is really a, kind of a force, not even a person. You remove all of that, and the gospel's just a mere myth. We're going to see today that the Trinity does not fit the saying, take it or leave it. Uh, you take it, and your salvation will be real. You leave it, and you're dead. Well, how did the church get to this description of God? What became the Orthodox teaching about the Trinity took well over 400 years to develop. And even after all these centuries, it's, it's still a tough one to grasp. If you've ever had contact with a Jehovah's Witness, you've heard that the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. And you've probably also heard that there is not a passage in the Bible that just very clearly says that God is one but three distinct persons. If there were, it wouldn't have taken 400 years to come up with this. Instead, the biblical teaching of the Trinity is more like a scattering of, of puzzle pieces that we have to collect from various parts of the Scripture and lay them out on a table and then assemble them together into a picture. But unlike a real puzzle, there's no picture on the cover of the box. And few would have predicted the picture that actually emerged once those pieces were put together. As one wit said, I love this, this doctrine is a riddle wrapped up inside a puzzle and buried in an enigma. A liturgist leading a congregation reading the Athanasian Creed one day, which affirms our belief in, in the Trinity, had to read phrases like, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, and at this point he was heard to mutter under his breath, the whole thing's incomprehensible. 
I personally feel a lot of empathy with that liturgist. I don't know if the whole thing is incomprehensible, but I want to say right up front that complete understanding of it is not for us, at least in this lifetime, and maybe not ever. John Wesley said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Ken Boa, who, by the way, is a, is a pretty good friend of mine and who just may be the most intelligent human being I have ever known. Sorry, Matt. Uh, he says this, the Bible forces any reader to crash into the ceiling of his own comprehension. I love that. C.S. Lewis writes this, if Christianity were something we were making up, of course we could make it easier, but it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he does not have any facts to bother about. So what are the facts? Almost every time I come to the scriptures, I come looking for two things. I come looking first for input for my head. What's it saying? What truth is here? What do I need to know? What are the facts that God is laying out? And secondly... I, I come looking for an impact on my heart. Just not input from my head, but an impact on my heart. What should this be doing to me? How, how is that God actually moved me as I, moving me as I'm learning these facts? Are there, are there changes that God wants to make in me because of these facts? How should these facts affect me? And frankly, as I've been reading and meditating in preparation for this message, both input and impact have occurred sort of big time for me in this. And I've been praying that the Spirit would take what he has done in me and is continuing to do and somehow translate it into whatever each one and every one of you needs this morning. So first, input for our heads. What are the facts? And I want to make this as simple and straightforward as I possibly can. So I could multiply verses on every point, but I'm not. We're going to just use one, maybe, maybe two at times. And the first thing is that God is three persons. And let's show that, first of all, by showing that the Father is not the Son. So we know there are two to start with. John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. So this is Jesus as a person talking to his Father as a person. So there are two separate persons. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit, John 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. So the Father and the Holy Spirit are two different persons. To round it out, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. John 16. It is to your advantage, Jesus says, that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. So there's a plurality here already in some of the facts of the scripture. We have three separate persons. Now, we could go to all kinds of scriptures to show, if you're ha actually having this question, that each of the three think, feel, and act, and thereby do, they do the things of persons. So they're all three persons. But we're not going to go into all that detail. This is church, not seminary. So we're going to kind of not go there. So God is three persons. Now, here's, here's, a, here's a note. To us, the word person means, Jay, you're a person. Uh, Matt, you're a person. 
Veronica, you're a person. But to the early Christians, the word person, which is persona, meant a mask worn by an actor on the stage to portray something. In Trinity talk, the mask is not worn by God to hide his real identity, but to reveal it. God has three revelational masks that he wears, each of which shows him to be a different person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But all three of those persons are fully and equally God. Now, it's scarcely a debate whether the Father is God, but in Matthew chapter uh, 6, Jesus said this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father, he's talking about his Father in heaven, feeds them. Consider the lilies of the field. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grasses of the field, and he, and he goes on. So he's equating heavenly Father with God. So the Father is God. The Son, famous verse, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 1.19. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Third person, Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5. Uh, the early Christians are selling a lot of their goods and bringing the proceeds to the apostles to be able to give to some of the, uh, some of the people who are having trouble with you know, finances. And everybody is bringing the finances, that, all that they get from it, they bring it all in. Well, Ananias and Sapphira bring some money in, and here's what it says. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. He said, yeah, well, this is all of it. It wasn't. You have not lied to man, but to God. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He lied to him. It's, that's lying to God. So the Holy Spirit is God. So God is three persons, and each of those persons is fully God. And at this point, if that were all that the Bible said, we'd be in great shape because we'd have tritheism. We'd have three equal gods. But here's the riddle wrapped up in a puzzle buried in an enigma. There's only one God. Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Famous verse. New Testament. You believe that God is one, you do well. In other words, you're right. He is one. And even the demons believe and shudder. So there we have three basic facts. Number one, God is three persons. All three of those persons are fully God in being, but there is only one God. Three months ago, we met at the river for our annual baptism service. Is it warm in here? Okay. Uh, speaking of the river made me want to just jump in and cool off. <laughs> As one after another uh, went into the water, we heard those familiar words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, those words come from Jesus' command to his men just before he ascended back to his Father. We call it the Great Commission. And it's, it's this, Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, standing by the river uh, at the end of May each year in the exhilaration of of witnessing such a, a momentous occasion for these people, it's really easy for all of us to miss the fact that that sacred act succinctly teaches the Trinity in a couple of ways. First, yeah, look up there. The word name is singular. Jesus does not say, baptized in the names, plural, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as if we were dealing with three separate beings. So by using singular rather than plural, he is indicating God's oneness. There's one God. Then notice the definite articles in front of each person. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And, and in that particular language, it, it, it is used a lot of times to identify individuals. So he does not say, baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, omitting the articles. Those articles are in there to point out that these are individual identifiable persons, three of them. So you've got one God in being, three gods in person. So what he's saying is that in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he shows the unity, and then he emphasizes the distinctness. Very, language sometimes is really important. And we can pick that up from the English. There's nothing no Greek for that. Second, standing by the river in the exhilaration of that moment, watching these people be baptized and just they're, oh, they're just glowing and we're clapping and we are so thrilled at that point. It, it's, it's also easy to miss the fact that that sacred act is taking place only because there's a trinity. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there we have the Father, and his role in all of this was to choose us. Verse 7, in him, the Son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So here we have the second person, it's the Son, Jesus Christ, and he gives us redemption. It's not the Father who comes down to die. Thirdly, at the end of that passage, uh, verse 14, it's a phenomenal 12-verse section, by the way. We, we ought to memorize it. In him, Jesus, you also were sealed with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So it was not the second person, the Son, who redeemed us, who stayed here to be with us and to indwell us, but he went back to the Father and he sent the Spirit, the third person, to come and indwell us. The only reason those folks are able to walk into the water to be baptized is because the one in three and the three in one has been at work. If there were only one person in the Godhead and he came to earth to die, who would be left in heaven for that God to be making atonement to? And if there were only two persons in the Godhead, who would be left to indwell and seal us when the second person, Jesus, went back to heaven to be with the first person, his father, and then to intercede for us to his father 
Plus, that third person who is here living inside of us knows, according to Scripture, what the second person, Jesus, in heaven is interceding for, for us, to the Father. So all three are involved in talking about us and what we need. So we are a lot of work for God. It takes the Trinity, all three of them, all one of them. Um, there are some people who think that God is only one, and this is God, represents God. And this is called modalism. It's called modalism because they believe that God shows up at different times in different modes. In the Old Testament, God showed up as Father. In the New Testament, he showed up as Jesus. After Jesus went back to heaven, or wherever he went, the Holy Spirit came, and he showed up there. So three showing up at different times, just one God. There are others who believe that, yeah, there's one God, but there are some others involved. Uh, they're not God. Like, there's, uh, there's Jesus. He's, 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 he's either a second-rate God or he's uh, not a God at all, but created by the Father. But the Father uses him. So he's not God, but he's sort of in and around God, and God uses him. Plus, then there's a third person. It's called the Holy Spirit, and he really kind of came after Jesus even, so he's not quite as important as Jesus. So we put him into Jesus, and Jesus is into the Father. And, but there's only, there's only one God, and Jesus is not a God, and the Holy Spirit is not a God. That's Arianism. And we have men in the past who, I don't know if they've died for that, but they have been persecuted. They have been banished. Athanasius, for example, uh, for that truth. And we have that. We have this truth down for us because of those men. They are going to be phenomenal people to sit down and have a conversation with in the new heaven and the new earth. What was that like to fight this? Then there's one that says, no, what it is is there are three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's called tritheism. Not a lot of that around today, but there has been. But they're all the same. They're equal. But there's three of them, three gods. Well, what we believe is that there is one God who exists in three persons. Now, the only way that we can even talk about trying to make this visually true and it won't work, is to say, there's God, but now this is the Father, and he is totally God as well. So there's no difference here. So if we could somehow get this down in here, and it still looked like this, but we knew the Father was in there, then that's okay. And then we would have to take the Son and somehow get him down in there, but it still looked like this, and then we take the Holy Spirit, and we put him in there too. So when we end up with this, we end up with one God. But in that one God, there are three persons who fully fill up Godhood, who are totally equal with each other, and they are all totally God. Do you see why we can't? You see why it's a mystery? Now, over the years, Christians have tried to explain this by coming up with different analogies. And I, I could go through a bunch of analogies. I'm going to just, just use one. You've probably heard it. Um, it's the analogy of, it's like an egg. You've got the white, you've got the yolk, and you've got the shell. Yolk plus white plus shell equals egg. So 
Father plus Son plus Spirit equals God. But it doesn't because by themselves, each of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are totally God. And the yoke is not a total egg and never will be. And that's where a lot of the illustrations we use break down. They just don't work. Nowhere does the Bible use an analogy for the, for the Trinity. And so the conclusion of theologians over the centuries is that there are no human analogies whatsoever. And anyone we try to use is misleading in some very significant ways. One guy said, try to explain it and you'll lose your mind, but try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. So far this morning, I've been talking about input for our heads. We've been asking, what does the Bible teach about the Trinity? And we've seen that it says a, it says a number of explicit things about God and then about the Father, about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit. And when we put all of those explicit truths and facts together, we come up with the implicit truth of the Trinity. And implicit truths are 100% valid if they take into account all of the explicit truths and facts that go together to form them. So even though the Trinity is not explicitly taught in the scriptures, it certainly is implicitly true because of the explicit facts that are there that go to make it up. So again, let's read it. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance equal in power and glory. I want to move on to the impact on our hearts. There will still be some more input as we go along, but, but I'm aiming at our hearts. I'm very indebted to two authors that Matt put me on to, um, Daryl Johnson and Michael Reeves, both of whom have written a book about the Trinity. They've actually pushed my thinking farther than it has ever gone uh, in the past. Most of what we've talked about this morning so far is the Trinity after creation. Michael Reeves asked a great question. What was God doing before creation? And that takes us way back to a time when we can't even talk about time. Um, so how do we know what God was doing back there? Well, Jesus told us as he prayed for his men and us on the last night of his life, John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now look at this. He, he calls him Father, implying that he, Jesus, is Father's Son. And he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is sort of Bible ease for forever. So he's also saying that he has been there as Son to that Father forever. There never was a time when Jesus was not or was, but was not a son. He is eternal as the Son of God, the Father. If there was a time, even one minute, when the Father was sonless, then he could not be called an eternal father. 
And if the son was not from all eternity, then when he did come into being, God would have changed from being not a father to being a father. And then when we say, as we read earlier, that God is in his being unchangeable, we're actually teaching heresy because he actually would have changed at the time when he went from not being a father to being a father. You with me? Three of you, so glad. Now add to that that the Spirit, uh, who according to Hebrews 9.14 is also eternal, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Add that we now have three eternal persons in one being. And here's what all that means. Daryl Johnson writes this. At the center of the universe is a community. That means that in the deepest mystery of his being is an intimate relationship, a community of love that has been forever. God has never been alone. He's never been lonely, which will be important next week when we talk about why he created us. He's always had perfect giving and receiving of love because of the three persons in the one God. Perfect community in his, I like this word, in his us-ness. The Trinity is a community of us-ness in oneness. And now look what we've seen. The most foundational thing about God is not some ethereal, some philosophically dense description of him that elicits only, huh? He's foundationally a father and a son who love each other perfectly through the bond of the spirit of love. The Trinity is many times described as the father who creates, the son who redeems, and the spirit who sanctifies. And every one of those is true. But I think incomplete and maybe not basic. See, the Trinity shows us that the father, before exercising his power as creator, was an eternally loving father to his son. And the Trinity also shows us that that son, before coming to earth and humbling himself as redeemer, was an eternally loved son of an eternally loving father. And eternity also shows us that the spirit before descending to earth on Pentecost to be the divine person of love among God's now adopted children, which is you and me, and among the sons, Jesus's brothers and sisters, who is you and me, that he was the spirit of love as the third person, not just a force, as the third person of that loving, perfect, eternal community. See, the Trinity is not basically a power committee of some kind to rule everything in sight. Although it is a power community and it does rule everything in sight, the Trinity is basically a loving community of the lover, who is the father, the loved, who is the son, and the expression of that love, who is the spirit. Michael Reeves writes this, it is not that God does being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. He's father 
all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as a father, and he rules as a father, and that means that God rules his creation as a kind and loving father. I I believe there's a reason that when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he did not say, pray like this, our creator and ruler in heaven. It's not that that's not true, 100% true. But when Jesus could have said anything as to how to address God, he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. He got to God's rule, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He got to that. But he's saying, I think that the basis of our relationship is not that we are ruled by a ruler, but that we are loved by a Father. Now, this is where the truth of the Trinity goes, uh, goes beyond just input from my head and moves to impact on my heart. Um, I have no doubt that many of you have been already cringing this morning as I've been talking about a loving father because you never had one. And as a result, you have no categories by which to even think about a loving heavenly father. Let me insert something here. Um, your real hurt may be over a broken relationship with a mother instead of a father. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to insert that relationship into what we're talking about this morning. Isaiah 66, 13 says this, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. That's God speaking to his people. See, he's God. Nothing's impossible for him. In this room this morning, I'm guessing that each of us has generally one of three stories about our earthly father. Some of you would be able to say, great, it's obviously not perfect, but it was really good. Then there are some of you who would say, eh, certainly not great, but also not terrible all the time. I think there's lots of variation in that one. And then there are some of you who would probably want to say, would you please not talk about this? I live with nothing but devastation in my heart about it and also, frankly, a ton of anger. I know this is true of many of you. Honestly, I can't identify with the first response. Great. Now, my wife, Jan, can. And it shows. And if I identify with, eh, I'm on the negative end of that scale. And honestly, for a season of my sonship to my dad, I'd be in that third group. Would you please not talk about it? My dad was a good provider. He taught me the importance of work, which I'm very grateful for. We had a bond over sports. In fact, that's about all we talked about. But it was fun. Although growing up in Chicago, talking about the Bears and the Cubs wasn't a lot of fun unless you get a real kick out of losing. I'm sure he loved me. And I think he verbalized it occasionally. He was raised by a strong mother and an alcoholic father, which I now understand impacted him as a person and as a dad in 
huge ways that neither of us knew then. So until I left home to get married, it was kind of, eh. Then after Jan and I had been married for a couple of years, and we married young. Jan was 18, I was 20. You can gasp, it's okay. Um, after a couple of years, and I'll keep this long story short, we suspected that Dad was having an affair. So I, as a pretty immature 22-year-old, took it on myself to try to catch him in it. I'd go out two or three nights a week from like 11 in the evening until 2 or 3 in the morning trying to find him. And one night after about six months of that, I found and confronted him at another woman's house at 2 o'clock in the morning. That kicked off a two-year debacle of trying to help him straighten out his life. He was sleeping on our couch a lot of the time. All the while, Jan and I were dealing with my mom's uh, incredible emotional swings, and I'll call it what it was. It was hysteria. And we're 20 and 22 years old with a two-year-old and pregnant again. Well, I went from bad to worse. Eventually, we had to tell my dad he wasn't welcome in our home anymore, and that sounds harsh, but if you knew the culture he was in, you'd understand that better. Mom divorced him, and over the next 30 years, Dad and I saw each other two or three times for maybe 15 minutes each time. After 30 years, I did what I should have done many years earlier. I initiated reconciliation between the two of us, and by the grace of God, and that is not spoken cliché Ish. By the grace of God, we reconciled before his death, and he was able actually to meet his grandkids. Now, those of you uh, who are in the third category, and maybe even a lot worse than mine, and I, and I believe that for some of you, I want you to know this, that as I talk about this stuff, I see you. I know what it's like. I get it. I don't know your exact pain, just like you don't know my exact pain. But I know the kind of pain it is. It became even more poignant when my kids got to the age that I was when I lost all relationship with my dad, and my kids were experiencing with me what I never got to experience with my dad. So my ability to internalize the love of my Heavenly Father has had very few earthly reference points. And as a result, and Jan and I have talked about this often, as a result, I have struggled to really get the impact on my heart of that eternal love of the Father. No trouble with the input from my head. I understand. He loves me. I get that. But that 18-inch journey from here to here, it's been pretty difficult. Now, I want to say something right here, that if I were saying it only to you and not to myself as well, it would sound very insensitive. We have to stop using our dysfunctional earthly father relationship as an excuse for why we are struggling with God and his love for us. Our heavenly father is not our earthly father, not even close. And he shows you and me that truth in numerous ways every day. Now hear me, 
I am not saying, just flip a switch and get over it. But I am saying that I think some of us need to get beyond allowing that to be a part of our identity. For years, I have used my story to explain why Jan has such an easier time really experiencing the love of her Heavenly Father than I do. And I want you to know this morning that as a result of this study, I'm done with that. Is it true? Yes. It's my story. Does it carry power? Yes. Is it so powerful that God can't overcome it? I'll let you answer that. I'm becoming proactive rather than just reactive in this. I have no clue what proactive means for you, uh, but I have total confidence that the spirit who lives in you does. At the end of the message, in just a few minutes, I'll explain what step I'm taking presently to just begin moving on in this. But but I'm not giving that as a template for you. Please hear me on that. This, This is between you and the Spirit, and most likely in community with people you trust and will let into the inner recesses of your being. Looking back later in life, Martin Luther reflected that as a monk, he had not been worshiping the right God. He said, it is not enough to know God as creator and judge. Not that you shouldn't know him like that, but it's not enough. And then he says, for although the whole world has most carefully sought to understand the nature, mind, and activity of God, it had no success in this whatsoever. But God himself has revealed and disclosed the deepest profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexhaustible love. We may look into his fatherly heart and sense how boundlessly he loves us. And I don't think I... And probably you. We don't have a clue how inexhaustible and boundless that love is. But you know, we should. Because God has not left us clueless. Listen to how clear he says it through the words of Jesus in his prayer to the Father just before he was arrested. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know, number one, that you sent me, and that you have loved them even as you loved me. We sang earlier, you are a good, good father, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. That is so true. But there are, I'm sure, many of us who, we, we, we know that, but we don't know that. But that truth just sweeps us up into the community of love at the very center of the nature of the universe as beloved brothers and sisters of the second person of that trinity, the beloved son of God. We are loved like he is loved. Is there anything more circuit-breaking than that? Listen to how God the Father expresses that same love for his people in the Old Testament. Isaiah, but now thus says the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. 
Fred Sanders says, this is what the doctrine of the Trinity helps us learn with greater precision that God is love. The triune God is a love that is infinitely high above you, eternally preceding you, and welcoming you in. Here's where I am. This truth that God has been a loving father to his son from all eternity, this truth that he wants to envelop me in that love embrace of himself, his son, and his spirit, this truth that he wants to whisper to me that he loves me just like he loves his eternal son, this truth that I have a record in the Gospels of that son being loved by and loving that father. This truth that the spirit of that father-son love actually lives inside of me to produce his fruit, the first of which is called love. Now, this truth has been seeping into my heart for quite a while. But coming face-to-face with the eternal reality of this community of love at the center of the universe in a way that I've never experienced before is doing something in my heart. And, And next week when we talk about why God created us, we'll come back to this Trinitarian community of love. And I'll read a sentence then that God used to move me from this truth just sort of seeping into my heart to actually begin to flow, not flood, beginning to flow into my heart. Even though I, like many of you, have very few earthly reference points to guide me. And this is maybe what a preacher ought to say, but I I want to say to you, beloved of the Father, I long for the same thing for you if you are struggling in this way. As a result of the study, I've determined to memorize Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Here's what I'm doing. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. So now we've got Father and Spirit in your inner being so that Christ, the third person, may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, forget those last couple of verses for a minute. As I look here, look at me on the screen. As I memorize and meditate on this prayer, here's what I'm going to be asking God that he would soak my soul in these words in such a way that it causes the love of my Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit to become more and more deeply real to me as the days go on. And I know it's a process. This is not a one surgery and done thing. But that's not the end. Now the last two verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that's the spirit at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. 
Amen. That's why this is so important. That in the end, I'm blessed, right? But in the end, God gets the glory. As you come to the table this morning to thank the Father for loving you enough to send his Son and to thank the Son for loving you enough to come to this earth to take your penalty on himself and to thank the Spirit for loving you enough to be the presence of that Trinitarian love in your heart. As you do that this morning, I encourage you to to reflect upon and then thank God for the truth that his community of love has breadth enough to encompass every tribe and tongue and nation. That's every person, including you. That his love has length enough to encompass all of eternity and time, including the time you're living in. That that love has depth enough to reach to the the sludge at the bottom of every human sin, even yours, and that that love has height enough to lift us out of sin and place us eternally in that loving community of three, and that includes you. Would you pray? I'm not going to pray for you. I want you to take a moment to pray your words to God right now. And I'll close with amen. All these things we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you come?